It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I am so glad that we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab your cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. According to the U.S. Census, the United States is home to more than 45 million immigrants, or about 14% of the total U.S. population. And while this country's origin story is one of immigration, there have almost always been anti-immigration attitudes, deep misconceptions about the immigration process, and biases about who is worthy of belonging. For example, although asylum seeking is legally permissible, asylum seekers are often framed as unworthy, criminal, and undeserving of U.S. protections. While mainstream news media and politicians often talk about immigration in terms of borders and safety, what's missing in these conversations are the historical, political, and social contexts that lead people to leave their home countries, their families, and what's familiar and seek refuge in another country. In Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration, Alejandra Oliva provides a personal account of immigration through her experience interpreting at the U.S.-Mexico border, at an asylum application clinic, and at an ICE incarceration center during a site visit. Alejandra Oliva is an essayist, embroiderer, and translator. Her writing has been included in Best American Travel Writing, nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and was honored with an Aspen Summer Words Emerging Writers Fellowship. Her book, Rivermouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration, which we'll be talking about today, received a Whiting nonfiction grant. She holds a master's degree from Harvard's Divinity School, and Alejandra joins us today. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited to be chatting about your book. Um, I'm very much interested in our immigration process, on the ways that we don't understand our immigration process at all, yet all of us seem to have very strong attitudes and opinions about how it's working or not working or or what people should be doing. Um, and so when I saw your book, I said, wow, okay, I, I need to, I have to read this book, first of all, um, and I have to hopefully have you on the show so we can talk more about it. And here you are. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm really excited too. And yeah, um, it felt as I was writing sometimes that I was like doing equal portions of like sharing my own experiences and also like trying to do education and like, actually, this is what this term means that you've heard a lot, but maybe like don't have the context for the the knowledge of. And so hopefully that's something that worked. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what one thing that I was going to say that I really loved about this book is, of course, you're you're sharing your personal experiences, but you're also contextualizing both your your own personal experience and the broader kind of immigration process into its own history and into the particular social and, and political conditions that have shaped the immigration process here in the U.S. And so I learned so much. Um, 
like so many, I don't even know where to start. I learned so much where I'm like different things are popping in my mind right now. Um, and I'm like, wow, I had no idea. Like the very, like the immediate thing that came to mind was about the bananas. Um, and like this, it is bananas. <laughs> it's super bananas. Yes. <laughs> and, and since now we're talking about it, maybe we can let the folks who are listening in know a little bit more too. And maybe we'll just start there because I think it's so instructive for how little we know about immigration and why people are really forced to seek refuge and do so here. Yeah, so um, we can start with the United <laughs> Fruit Company. Um, this is this company that was U.S. owned uh and basically, they went down into Central America, South America, the Caribbean, and started buying up land to set up banana plantations. And if you think of, like, those kitschy, weird, like, 1950s recipes where you had, like, bananas floating in jello and, like, all <laughs> of this crazy stuff and, like, bananas on cornflakes, like, this is all this sort of, like, manufacturing of a market for this fruit. And the thing is, as they're buying up all this land, as they are sort of going into these countries and rearranging their agricultural system. Um, bananas are also kind of like a finicky plant in that they are all clones of one another. So if one plant gets a disease, then all the other plants around it are susceptible to it. And so you have all these situations where like entire plantations or entire parts are like getting taken out by by banana diseases. And as some of the governments of these countries are starting to say, wait, hold on, we don't want this one single company to be the landowner of like 90% mm -hmm. of our land and started trying to kick them out. The United Fruit Company started getting people or started getting their friends and allies in the US government to come in and start destabilizing the governments of these countries to start manufacturing coups to replace the people who were in power um and just in this way completely 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 destabilized the entire region of central america parts of south america and it's kind of from these very early stabilizations like around the late 1800s and early 1900s that we see so much of the beginnings of these political problems that have continued on in these countries to the present day because of the ways that, you know, the wealthy were empowered or a select mm -hmm. few people were empowered. And I'm trying to remember, I read a fantastic book about this um, to do the research for that section. It's called Bananas. Um <laughs> I'm trying to see if I can find the name of the guy who wrote it because it's a really like top to bottom incredible book. Oh, by Peter Chapman. Bananas, How the United Fruit Company Shaped the World. I would mm. really recommend that book. It's fantastic. Yes. I mean, I know bananas might seem like a weird place to, to start this conversation, but I think again, and just thank you so much for sh for sharing that, it, it really, I think, frames out what we're talking about, right? It's not just immigration that's happening today because of necessarily something that is happening in our present moment, but we're talking about immigration and the flow of people and the flow of power that is centuries, right, in the making. But yet, I always like to say, you know, the past is ever present. 
and it's shaping our experience and how we understand the world today. Um, and I think this is also just a great example of how you're able to bring in really important historical, social, political knowledge into, into your, into your book in a way that, that makes sense. Right. And that helps us have a fuller understanding again, of things that are happening today. Um, but then also, you know, hopefully gets people interested to learn more and maybe go read more about <laughs> bananas yeah. uh, to have a fuller understanding of this moment that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one of those things that it's very easy to just see sort of the very thing that's happening right now and say, you know, I can see the reasons that this is happening and it all lies outside of our borders. This is none of our business. Why should we be getting involved? And then you look at something like the United Fruit Company and you're like, no way, it's because of our involvement as a government in these other countries and these other places so that we could exploit their resources so that we could, um, you know, take as much money and goods mm -hmm. out of those countries that those countries are in trouble now today. And so it is, it is our business. We made it our business when we went down there initially. <laughs> Yes, we can't mind our own business. And so, <laughs> or maybe it is that we think everything is our business. And and now, <laughs> and now here we are in, in this moment. Um, I think the other piece that really stuck out to me and that I like to remind, I'm thinking about in the classroom, remind my students about as we talk about immigration in the classes that I teach is that asylum seeking is a legally permissible. It is the quote unquote right way to immigrate or one of the quote unquote yes. right ways to immigrate. I know there's a lot of language and inflammatory language around doing it the quote unquote right way. Um, and asylum seeking is one of those ways, and yet we have very much demonized asylum seeking as a type of immigration, um, not to speak anything of the folks who are asylum seekers. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more just about kind of the the history of asylum um, as a, a type of immigration process, and even a little bit about the process itself. Yeah, so asylum seeking or like asylum as a as a legal political category started out as um something that happened in the wake of World War II um as we sort of as a global community were realizing the ways in which we had profoundly profoundly failed um Jewish people living in Europe. Um and, you know, there are all kinds of stories about the United States turning people away because they had already fulfilled their quota for like the number of German or Dutch or whatever immigrants that year. Um, there are all kinds of stories in which like we were not able to help as many people as we should have because of our adherence to our very like strict at that point numbers based immigration system. And so as a national community. Um, we kind of came, or an international community, I should say, we kind of came together with all these other countries and said, people have the right to seek asylum if they are being persecuted by their government for a quality that they are, uh, that they are unable to change or that they shouldn't have to change. So things like your religion, you shouldn't be forced to convert, but you could, um, or like your race, which you can't change. Um, and so it was saying, you know, if your government is persecuting you for these things, you should have the ability to move to a different country and ask for asylum, ask for the right to stay there legally, build a life there, and not have to return to your own country because you're afraid of being harmed if you go home. Um, and this is, I think, an incredibly 
it took us a long time for everybody to sign on. And it's an incredibly important piece of um, sort of like international agreement. But what's happened in the last couple of years is not just that the people who are coming here to the U.S. need are afraid of going back home, but they're afraid for going back home for a number of different reasons that aren't necessarily related to like government persecution in the way that, you know, we had originally planned for it. And like, for example, fleeing from war isn't necessarily a thing that will get you asylum. Um, Having to flee because your home has been destroyed by a natural disaster time and time again because of increased global warming uh, is not a reason to apply for asylum. And so we're seeing a world that is much more complicated and much more challenging than the one that our asylum laws set up, you know, almost 100 years ago now, uh, sort of were meant to capture. But we still have all these people showing up who need help and who are often being persecuted for what you could consider a political opinion, not wanting to join a gang in El Salvador is a political opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have this like political stance that you shouldn't have to do that. And the government is not helping you um, in not doing that. And so maybe you need asylum. And so we have all these people showing up saying, you know, asylum is... I want asylum. I'm afraid to go back to my home country. And that's um, kind of what I talk about in the book when I talk about credible fear interviews. That's this very first step that you take where, um, you know, an asylum officer says, are you afraid to go back to your home country? Why? And you have to say yes. And you have to kind of explain the things that have happened to you or the things mm-hmm. that have happened to your family that make that fear real or quote unquote credible. What that often looks like is an extremely traumatized person sitting in front of a government official and saying, you know, I'm scared because of this, this and this. And a credible fear interview, passing a credible fear interview alone will not get you asylum. Um, You still have to appear either in front of a court or in front of um, in front of another asylum official with like your proof and everything. But that uh, credible fear interview is kind of this very, very first step where you don't necessarily have to have, you know, the text messages this person sent you or uh, know a ton about like your country conditions that mean that this is a thing that's happening to you. It's just meant to sort of pass this very, very baseline um, level of proof. And that will hopefully, depending on what kind of policies are going on at the border, Um, get you into the country, let you start um, building your case to apply for asylum, let you start um, sort of finding family to settle with or finding a place to live, things like that. Um, And then you still have to apply for asylum and go through that first step. But if you don't pass your credible fear interview, if you are unable to convince that official, then you immediately get um, deported or expelled from the country. And so it's this really, really high pressure situation where people are having to construct a narrative out of something that may have happened very recently Mm -hmm. um out of something that they may not fully when you're traumatized your like sense of time and your sense of narrative get really scrambled and so you may not be able to like string a full coherent you know first this happened then this happened then this happened together um and so it's this really really high stress high stakes moment and we don't have people with attorneys in the room. Um, sometimes your translator is like on speakerphone on a phone in the middle of the table. And so you're kind of like, 
what's he saying? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so it's these really, really high stakes moments that are also treated very sort of casually and sort of not importantly, but yeah. Yeah. You know, as I was reading your book and you're talking about the credible fear interview and, and it, was bringing to mind another guest that um, that we had on this show, Dina Nairi. Her book is Who Gets Believed? And so again, in part of her book, she is talking about asylum seeking and, and this process of constructing a believable story, uh, a story that will move someone to say, okay, you know, you have a, a credible fear and will allow you to stay in this country, right? As you go through that formal process. But again, this question of, of how, do, how does a person construct the right narrative. And when we think about translation, um, and that plays a big role in it, as you talk about in your book, right, finding the right words and, and what gets lost in translation and, and how much of, of yourself ends up in, you know, in that translation. Um, and just that idea of how much language can move us or, or not move us if we don't have, if we can't translate in a way that also can convince somebody of, of what we're, what we've experienced or even um, translate or convey the right emotion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you are, you know, relying on someone that you often haven't met. You can't really check their work because you don't understand this other language that they're speaking. And um, it just feels really scary. Like I said, sometimes they're not even physically present in the room. And so it's this also other layer of like, it's someone I can't see. It's someone I don't know. It's someone who I think might be understanding me, but I can't confirm that in any way. And so yeah. it's this really tense, fraught relationship and situation. Mm -hmm. I was um, doing a little bit of, of research because, again, I, we have so many misconceptions and just misunderstandings about the immigration process. And if we believe what we hear politicians or political pundits saying, um, well, our sense of what's happening is even more, more warped. But I found this um, data from the Migration Policy Institute um, about asylum backlogs. And it says more than 1.3 million asylum applications were awaiting processing as of May 2023. Um, of these, approximately 750,000 were pending in immigration courts. So about 40% of all cases in the immigration court system. 600,000 were with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And the average asylum case in immigration court takes more than four years to be completed. And that I had, you know, I had no idea. Um, but for that is a long time to be in limbo Um you know, in fear of potentially being returned to a place that you you can't, you know, like you won't be safe, but also unsure of, you know, where you are, like in that limbo position, you can't really put down roots where you are either. Yeah, no, uh, the, the asylum backlog, and honestly, like most immigration categories have a crazy, crazy backlog like that one too, of not just months, but years of waiting for your your case to be pulled through. And that's also the kind of thing that has repercussions all the way down the line. So it's incredibly difficult right now to find an attorney who will accept your asylum case because everyone's got these cases that they're holding on to for four years. And just because a case is waiting for a date to come for their court date or for the next step to happen doesn't necessarily mean that there's not active work going on. Like it could be 
that, you know, the client moves and so you have to file a change of venue or um, you have to, you realize that you need to file a continuance or you have to like renew the paper. Like there's all kinds of like little things. And so for these cases to take four years, it means that there's like constant ongoing work. And so every asylum attorney that I know is like, has a crazy caseload and just cannot take on new cases, but it takes a really long time for any single case to get cleared. And so it's also really difficult to find representation and it's much, much harder to win your case if you don't have representation because Mm -hmm. that asylum application is complicated and it is weird to fill out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate your book so much for really kind of walking us through these complexities and the challenges Um, again, because I think people think like, oh, it's just this fast process, right? You get in quote unquote the line and then you fill out your paperwork and then (laughs) you're here. And it's like, that's not how that works at all. Um, but when I think about storytelling, right, which of course is what you're talking a lot about in your book, um, I'm thinking, I was thinking about the types of immigration stories, right? That we're used to both that immigration success story, which we love, right? Um, as uh, Americans that bootstrap that, you know, like came from nothing and now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we love that story. So there's that type of way to be an immigrant, right? Uh, but then also the immigration horror stories, um, which I think, you know, really told the line of like an immigration trauma porn, right? That's like the only kind of two ways that we think about immigrants or that success or just so tragic. Um, and what your book does so beautifully is really uh, demonstrate the complexities in the immigration process and and more than just like oversimplified, oh, people cross a border, right? Yeah. Um, but the actual individual experiences of immigration, which are very, very varied, right? They're different, they're individual. Um, and I think we have to put the people back into the immigration process um, for us to really understand and start to grow our sense of, of community, I think. Um, but also humanity as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, when, as you kind of mentioned in the intro to the show, when we talk about immigration, we're often talking numbers, we're talking policy. And when we talk numbers, we're talking like, you know, X thousand number of people cross the border this month or whatever. But there's very little focus on everyday people's stories and kind of like, oh, I'm here or like, this is what I had to get through to get across the border. And we have some of that now, but it's not, you know, about the little details that happen along the way, or it's not about people's like reality and lived experience. And we have some really beautiful books that address this, like from the point of view of people. I'm thinking of um, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo's um, The Children of the Land, which is um, sort of his memoir about being a kid and um, undocumented. And then this book that's been huge in the last couple of years, uh, Javier Zamora Solito, which is about um, his experiences being an unaccompanied child migrant as he crosses the border. And so in these books, um, in a bunch of other like narratives and first person things that are just like coming out of the shadows in these last couple of years, we have people claiming these experiences and talking about what it's been like for them. And I feel like there's there's an increased awareness of people's humanity, but at the same time, like when you're listening to the news, it's still just like these numbers, these sort of images of like floods of people rather than individual human beings. And I think that 
it's remembering that you know there's there's each of these individual people and these stories that we hear that's everyone that's not just the ones that end up writing a book it's everyone Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I mean, I think for me, as I was reading your book, something that I continue to really appreciate, but also help me kind of think through even, you know, how I think about immigration, um, being an immigrant myself, is the way that you let us into your own thought process and your own, how you're wrestling with your own beliefs, right? Um, And of course, that's where I think part of that faith part comes in. Um, And what I love was how you talk about, um, you know, your decision to translate, um, why, and, and this idea of being a good person, right? That translation might offer up something good um, to someone else. Um, and even a lot of, you talk about like feelings of grief as well for some of the things that you experience firsthand as a translator at the border. And so in this book, it is, again, it is personal. And I think what helps me as a reader is to understand, um, again, like your own thought process and your own experience and some of the encounters that you have. Yeah, um, it felt really important to me to kind of talk about who I was as I was going through this process, because I think that, I mean, a it's it's inescapable, like I am who I am, and I'm the person that I was while I was writing the book. And I was the person that I was as I was going through all these things. And Um, I think, you know, as you mentioned, like, a lot of people don't know much about the immigration system. And that certainly applied to me when I started working in it. I was just kind of like, I didn't, I don't think I even really knew what asylum was when I started doing the interpretation work. Like, it was a new concept for me and something that I was figuring out sort of as I was working. And, you know, every single step of the way, like taught me something new. And it felt really important to bring people along to that, because I think it's also one of those areas that people are like, oh, I should know about this. This is like a big deal. It's in the news all the time. Why don't I understand it? And it felt very important to be like, no, you're allowed to be like, very misinformed and stupid about this. I was (laughs) and, uh, you know, come with me as I learn about this in real time. Um, Yeah. And so that felt really important. And then the other thing that I really, really wanted to get across by like including myself in the book was, um, you know, I'm the child of immigrants, um, but it was a very different immigration story than the one that we tell a lot or that we were kind of seeing in that I was like meeting people with. Mm -hmm. Um, So my parents came to the country for my dad to finish his PhD. And so they came into the country with an amount of wealth, an amount of like social and cultural capital, an amount of like educational privilege that is not what we usually hear when we think about immigration or it's not what we usually think about. And so by the time I was born, by the time I got both of my languages, um, my parents were very well established in the U.S. Having papers was never a question. It was always um, sort of a thing that happened because they were the kinds of immigrants that the U.S. quote unquote wanted and and felt to be valuable. And so because of all of these things, it felt really important to say, you know, I there is a sense in which I understand and can empathize with what people are going through or with the stories that I'm hearing. But there is another way in which I have no idea. Uh, 
my family's financial privilege, my family's social privilege has absolutely kept me from many, many of these realities. And I am figuring them out also as I go. And so it felt really important to also be able to say, you know, I am part of this conversation. I'm part of this story, but there are limits to what I know and understand and what I, the conversations that I can be a part of or contribute to, but it still felt important to to go and express my solidarity and to go and and be involved in this work. Um, and like, it was also complicated. It was like, I want to be a, a good person, but like, what does that actually look like? And what does that mean? And to what extent are you complicit in the system when you are even like helping somebody fill out a form that's going to make them findable to the U.S. government in a lot of ways? Um and these are all feelings and 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 complications and complexities that I felt like I had in the middle of of doing the work and also after that I still think about a lot. And so that was something that I wanted to include in the book because I wanted to show that it wasn't just this straightforward being like, hello, I'm here to do good works. <laughs> I'm here to help. And like, it's much more complicated than that. And I think it's much more complicated than that whenever you spend to a, a situation as complicated as, you know, the U.S. immigration system, the border, and it does nobody any favors to pretend like it's a simple thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what I, I loved about the book was you being so honest about like, it's complicated. I had these different feelings. My beliefs were challenged. I changed my mind about things. Um, and I really appreciated that as a reader, you, you mentioned like writing this as a way, like come with me as I learn about this very complex system that is always changing. That's the thing, like what you knew at the time that you were doing the work, at the time that you were writing the book, very different than even today and what those laws and policies might look like. And that's part of the reason why it's so complicated um, is because our policies are always around immigration are always changing. And so it's hard to really get a firm understanding of even what the process is or, or what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, I finished the like very last editable version of this book about a month before Biden released his um, his immigration policies at the beginning of this year. And so there's like kind of some hints that like the in the book that like the Biden administration is not doing as well as I wanted them to as far as mm -hmm. immigration policies, but like the real stuff wouldn't come until just after my deadline. And so <laughs> it's like even now the book is outdated and it's going to keep being outdated forever. Um, but it still feels important to be, especially during the Trump years where everything was changing so, so quickly. I was like yeah. very conscious of being like, this happened in these months because this may not have been the case if you went down to Tijuana six months later, even a week later in my case. Um, I went right before the migrant protection protocols were established, which basically meant you could cross the border, get an asylum hearing date and then be kicked right back out to Mexico to wait for that time, which, as you mentioned, could be months or years before you got your actual court date. And mm -hmm. so um, all those people that I saw crossing the border would have come right back the next week. Um, and so even a week after I was seeing what I saw, it the situation changed again completely. And so it felt important to record what was happening because even every time a policy changes, there are still people who get caught up in it and whose lives are changed by these very, very seemingly minor choices. 
and it's important to recognize that like people's lives have been actually affected by all this tug of war and like switching between policies and and changing things from one month and one week to another and so yeah it's an outdated book but i think that's okay yeah i mean i think it is okay because it just shows how much of our immigration policy is very much at the whims of of people in power um and that's what I, I also appreciated about the book, right? You have these broader kind of more historical um, context, but then also understanding that in the moment, right, these laws and policies are changing, you know, week to week. Um, and what we thought was maybe a permanent process or a permanent stance from the, the United States can change, right? At any point in time, depending upon who who's elected, um, something that really resonated with me as I was reading the book, you talk about um, January 2017, right? When Trump comes into office and of course makes so many different changes, yes. um, broad stroke <laughs> changes to immigration policy. And, um, you know, you say you're Googling whether your expired Texas driver's license would be enough to prove your citizenship. And I just remember January 2017, as I'm sure Folks who are immigrants remember that time. And I'm I'm a transnational adoptee, but I remember even in adoptee circles, people saying like looking for their adoption paperwork, looking for their naturalization paperwork, making sure that they had access to paperwork that, as we also know, paperwork like that doesn't really mean any, it doesn't yeah. have to mean anything, but that sense of some sort of sense of security that we're looking for in the midst of all of these really massive changes that are impacting, right, our lived experience. Yeah. And it was one of those things that like, even as I was doing it, I was like, I don't actually know if this is a big deal. Like I, I think I might be too privileged for this to like actually have an effect on me. Like certainly I've never thought about this before. But even so, there was that fear kind of creeping in of being like, what if it does become a big deal? What if this is suddenly a thing that matters in this huge, huge way? And I have messed up by not ensuring that I have a current driver's license in my wallet. And I mean, that goes to show both the level of privilege that I had um, that I'd never thought about it before. Mm-hmm. And I could let my driver's license expire that I could like be like, I don't actually know where my passport is. Like, let me call my parents. Uh <laughs> And also just the the level of fear and uncertainty that I think a lot of people who were not white, uh, in some way immigrants were feeling in those in those first couple of weeks where it was suddenly like, wait, we can just ban immigration from like a number of countries and just leave people stranded, leave students with visas stuck at the airport. We can just stop like that that can happen. And so I think a lot of people were suddenly like, wait, what else can happen? In what ways was my life that I thought was very stable and safe? Could that be destabilized? And I think that that is a very common experience for a lot of other people who live with much more precarious immigration statuses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, like you said, for a lot of folks, we might have the privilege to not have to think about a lot of these questions. Um, and I think for me, at the heart of your book, and even in, in this, you know, kind of one moment of time that we're talking about that you discuss in the book, again, it brings it back to these broader questions of belonging, right? Who gets to belong? Who um, Who's deserving of belonging? What does it mean to be a citizen, right? Or what does it mean to be able to even just stay in, in the country 
um, as well. And you talk a lot about, for me, as I'm reading this, this idea, right? These bigger ideas of, of belonging um, and how we create um, that value of people and who we're able to accept in as immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is, even for people who have their statuses, even for people who have like gone through all of this and finally gotten their paperwork, there is still a a sense of marginalization or like a, a, a feeling that like I just went through all that and I was treated in this way. And, and now that I have like this one little piece of paper, suddenly mm-hmm. everything is completely different. And like, what does that mean about this piece of paper? What does that mean about my status as a person? And um, that seems like a problem that is both a lot more challenging to fix and one that is urgent that we do so and one that seems really important to take on as as a country and as a culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I want to change gears just slightly because a lot of the book, you're also talking about where you were um, in school and thinking about being in divinity school and how that's also framing both the ideas of translation that you kind of talk about a little bit about translation theory, but also how you're thinking through your own ideas of faith. And I found this part um, really interesting because so many of the things that happen in our world can challenge our faith, right? Um, And then also as a person who grew up in the church, but then was like, I don't really think that's my thing, you know, Um, but then coming back to some ideas, I guess, or some relationship with God or or whatever it is, I was also really drawn to your reflections on this idea of faith and you really weave in some of these um, Christian Bible stories that folks might be familiar with um, as well. And I'm I'm wondering what are your thoughts now about or where have where are you where's your thinking now about these ideas of, of faith and and um you know this idea of a god who is you know all-knowing and and supposedly working things out for our good um where where have you landed now on these big ideas of faith that is a great question and one that is still really complicated for me honestly yeah. um Yeah, I was in divinity school for most of the events of the book and also a good chunk of writing of the book. Um, And I went to divinity school because I'd been raised very evangelical and like you was kind of like, I don't know about this. I'm not sure. Had moved away from it and had kind of like started realizing all the ways that like it had actually had a tremendous impact on my life too. And like my ways of thinking, my my ethics, my everything to have been part of a church for, you know, 18 and change years. And I was like, okay, this feels like it's maybe worth a little bit more investigation or a little more digging into. And I feel like doing divinity school and doing this work at the same time also like led me to confront these very very old questions of you know why does injustice and suffering exist if god is just and like mm-hmm. what why is any of this happening if theoretically somebody is looking out for us and um i don't know that i've like resolved those questions and at the same time there is a tremendous sense of like ethics and responsibility and 
sort of outreach to other people that I feel like came from doing that work that doesn't feel unrelated to religion. And it feel a lot of people that I met um, doing that same work were there because of an out of religious conviction. Um, a lot of the migrants that I met and were talking to had incredibly, incredibly strong senses of faith and of a God that was looking out for them and of being protected and surrounded by God's love in a way that I was like, really? <laughs> we're going through very hard times and uh, mm. I don't know about this. And I get, I guess like the, the way that I feel about it now is that it's really complicated and that I, I don't understand all of it and I don't need to. Um, I just need to know enough to keep doing the work and to keep showing up and to keep asking questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, such big questions, right? I don't expect you to have it all figured out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But part of the beauty in the book is you wrestling with, you know, with your faith or with some of these ideas, like you said about justice or injustice and is there some you know loving god who who really is um has control or is doing something good with all this really horrible things that are happening and i think those are questions that that are very human questions that people have probably regardless of if you're in a faith tradition or, or not um you know why are these things happening and and should they make sense or is there some good that's you know, gonna come out of it all? Or are we just out here just living a life of suffering? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that really, really struck me, particularly as you're talking about translation and and you talk about um, uh, a Bible story that folks might be familiar with about the Tower of Babel. And I thought, you know, when you talk about both this as being kind of the the creation of different languages, right? So people are trying to build this tower that's going to get them up to God. And God is like, nope, can't, you're not going to get up here. Um, so all of a sudden people are struck with all these different languages and perhaps they cannot understand each other. And you bring up a, a big point because it's not just the language or maybe not being able to communicate in words that people kind of remember or can, can come to a consensus about, but that that was the beginning of this distrust in one another. Um, and I'm wondering if you talk a little bit more about both language and how it can create trust or maybe how it can even sow distrust. Yeah. So I, when I was an undergrad, I was really good friends with this girl who could speak three languages very, very fluently. She was, she spoke English and French and Arabic and, um, I remember going with her to like a Cuban diner and uh, it was her and another friend and uh, my other friend and I were speaking Spanish and we ordered in Spanish and they turned to my friend and they were like, what do you want in Spanish? And she was like, oh my God, I don't know. Like, ah, I don't understand. Like I could just see her like panicking and I feel like that is this very like illustrative uh story because of the way that like when you are confronted with another language that somebody expects you to speak or that somebody expects you to understand it can be tremendously disorienting and like Mm -hmm. kind of freaky even if you already know three other languages very very well um and I think that 
that sort of spark of disorientation and that sort of spark of feeling confused and sort of like anxious about being able to communicate is a seed of a lot of this like distrust or anxiety around people who who don't speak your language or who who are unable to communicate with you in the way that you want them to um Mm -hmm. and at the same time I feel like even being able to come and speak a couple of words and be like hello I'm making like a little bit of an effort I can say hello to you I can say how are you and then I can say sorry my whatever language is not that good Mm -hmm. um is a way to sort of start building connection and start building um a relationship with someone even across languages and there are at the border I saw people who would not understand Spanish or have somebody ask them a question and they would be like ah I don't know I don't know like I'm gonna pull Mm -hmm. over a translator um and kind of like have that panic reaction Mm -hmm. and I also saw people who spoke no Spanish and were able to just you know say like and like share stickers or just kind of be like I don't understand what you're saying but like I'm here to support you and like if you need anything I will pull someone over but until now we can just share this coffee or share this moment in time and like yeah no problem I can look after your kids for you for a second while you like repack your bags or Mm -hmm. and so there are these it is possible to overcome that initial sort of like moment of spark and moment of panic and just be like we're both people we're gonna try and get along we're gonna try and communicate and you know that doesn't work for every situation that doesn't work for every every place but I think just having that openness and that willingness is something that feels I think particularly challenging to um English monolingual speakers who have never really had to confront that because I also see, you know, immigrants navigating a world all the time that doesn't necessarily cater to them linguistically and just being like, yeah, I'm yes, I can make myself understood if I need to, or like, I brought my neighbor who speaks English and like, we're here, we're going to figure it out. Um, and, and so I think that there is, there's, it's important for people who are not used to navigating a multilingual world to get used to it, to not panic, to to try their best to feel comfortable, even if that's not your first um, your first reaction or your first response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about those moments that we can either embrace or run away from, right? And try to um, insulate ourselves away from having those moments of maybe disorientation, um, or we can embrace them, particularly as we are in a country that has no national language um, (laughs) in the way, but yet the ways that for a lot of folks, you know, we believe like everyone should be able to speak English um, versus thinking like, how are the ways that I might be able to communicate and, and welcome in folks who maybe I don't understand 
understand, but who I could learn to understand, right? Or who we could have those human connections. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important. Um, and something that your your book does so well is really, I think, challenge folks to think about how can I make those human connections? How can I be more aware of what's happening to the people around me? And where might I be able to step in um, and, you know, helpfully, hopefully create, you know, a more welcoming community, um, if not thinking about how might I get involved in the political process, right, to help create a more welcoming community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there are all kinds of levels of involvement that you can have from being like, you know, my neighbor speaks this other language, I should learn how to say hello, so I can like wave at them over the fence or whatever, um, to, I'm going to call or write my congressman to I am going to figure out what kind of organizing around immigration issues is going around in my community and and get involved in that and, you know, make posters and show up at rallies and write letters and all this stuff. And so there are all kinds of ways that you can can get involved in, and all of those are important and and special. And even if your way of getting involved is just making like one person feel like they are a part of your community and that they are somebody that you are looking out for, then that that's it. That's that's the whole project. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I love that. How in the book you say um, this book is about immigration, but it's also about reading and rereading, going over passages in your life, pouring over someone else's words until you find your own life irrevocably altered. And I think even you know, for me, both reading your words and, and but also thinking back through different moments in my own life as well. And how might I reinterpret those and what might I do with that information now, right, that maybe is giving me a new perspective. So I think this book is a really great companion to even thinking through, um, I, well, I'll say my life as a reader, and I, I'm sure for other folks when they read the book as well. Um I also found it a book that I had to take my time with in a good way, right? A book that I wanted to savor and really understand um, because of, again, as we talked about, uh, as we started, you know, all these different historical moments, right? That I'm like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Um, That made me like really rethink, you know, what I knew about bananas, maybe, um, yeah. <laughs> or, or other things. Uh, but then also because for me, as someone who does not speak Spanish and you include um, text um, throughout that is in Spanish, I think even for some folks that in itself, that process of, okay, but I want to know what's being said and taking that moment to, you know, Google, you know, Google translate. And then also, put, which then put me in that, that mindset or that process of like, I don't think this is exactly what they said. (laughs) Yeah, Google Translate's getting better, but there are times when you're like, I don't know about this. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not what was said or that's not what was meant, even though maybe these words mean, you know, like these things. things. Yeah. Um, And so even just like that process of, you know, really understanding, like for me, just as a reader, wanting to understand what you're saying um, and then being like, okay, I'm going to have to use more context (laughs) clues. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But I think absolutely. that's part of the point, right? Like of 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 translation. Things get lost in translation and we try the best that we can. Um and we can get better, right? Like we yeah. can get better. <laughs> um and we can also 
in a lot of ways sometimes or in a lot of situations, use context clues and kind of figure it out, but find a way to communicate and be understood. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think if the book is arguing for anything or saying anything, it's this sort of like encouragement to do that and to sort of be open to different ways of communicating and to be open to to different ways of of getting in touch with and getting along with your neighbors. Um and so I'm glad that you took the time to to do all these uh little translations and kind of trying to figure out what the what I was talking about. So yeah. Yeah, of course, because I want to right, I want to understand what what's happening um with the folks that you mentioned in the book, but also in this process. And I think that same desire to understand others, I think we can use that outside of reading a book, right? We can use that in our in our daily lives um and understand understand others um, because we also know how important it is for us to be understood, right? And we have that human need to to be able to connect with people. Um, I think it's part of what you mentioned in the book too about like language and how it can signal, um, of course, like relationships, um, but also care. And so just taking that opportunity to, again, like you said, maybe even just learn to say, hello, how are you? Um, And what that communicates about how we feel about other people that we encounter and the way that we can care for one another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, speaking to someone is like this very basic level of of showing them your attention and of of welcoming welcoming them into to your community in your life and so being able to do that even at a very basic level with people you meet is is a really important first step to to building community and to building solidarity with people who you might see every day but not have talked to before mm-hmm. absolutely as you talk about in the book uh, of language as being you know both individual but also collective um and again historically connected um politically constructed uh, but a shared project that we we do together and so the together part is key right we have to actually yeah. get together <laughs> um to actually engage in this process of, of naming and um building community as well uh well alejandra it has been such a pleasure to chat with you um, about your beautiful, beautiful book. Um, there's so much um, that we could have talked about, but hopefully the the uh, the bananas were enough to get people really super interested. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but also let people know like that the book is about both personal experiences, but again, um, those broader social, political, and historical factors as well that are present in all of our lives. So thank you so much for for joining us, and thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a great conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you again to Alejandra Oliva. She is the author of River Mouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book because of the ways that Alejandra is able to weave in both her personal story, her experiences um, with, in this case, translating in a variety of different contexts, um, but also, again, 
really giving us some of that historical, social, and political context as well. Uh, I think a lot of times we have these very standard immigration stories in our minds, um, but she does a a beautiful job of giving us insights into the immigration process, but also stories that maybe we're not as familiar with, right, that aren't part of those immigration big narratives that we might see circulated in the media. And even for myself as a transnational adoptee, as an immigrant, uh, our stories are usually not framed as immigration stories, but rather as family stories. So that was also top of mind for me as I was thinking about the ways that we think about immigration or who is an immigrant. And again, all these ideas of deservedness and what does it mean to belong. I actually want to leave today with an excerpt from the book, Alejandra writes, the task of the archivist translator of anonymous texts is this, to be able to surface from within herself a story that will move people into action that might change a mind or at least turn it to contemplation to elide the boundaries so I'm not the only one carrying it. This book definitely has changed my mind or open my mind to different ways to think about immigration, but also just help me to understand that immigration process a little bit more. Um, Again, immigration always in our news cycle, yet we know very little about the immigration process. And sometimes that is on purpose. Um, But this book really gives, again, sheds light into that process and most importantly, um, into the lives of people who are trying to navigate our immigration system. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every week talking to folks about what they know about the world around us. I hope that you will join me again. And as always, a reminder to subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you never miss a conversation. Plus, it makes it super easy to share these conversations with other folks who I'm certain are also curious about the world that we live in. Well, I want to close with this reminder. Each and every day, you get to decide. Yes, you. You get to decide what type of day it's going to be and how you're going to show up in this world. Over time, it is those daily choices that create your life. What type of life are you creating?